Hello and welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, you stewing humans. Um, I have a special treat for you this week because I this podcast is me having a chat with the legendary Sinead O'Connor, also known as Shuhada Sadaquat. So I've got a lovely chat with Sinead. If you're here just to hear Sinead O'Connor and you don't want to listen to me and you don't know who the fuck I am, that's absolutely fine. You just fast forward to about 25 minutes in. For everyone else who wants to listen to me speak, I need to have a small little bit of a rant before I get into the the chat with Sinead O'Connor. So I had a bit of an eventful week this week and a controversial one because the Irish Independent, which is a large newspaper in Ireland, they published this opinion piece on Sunday written by a journalist and the opinion piece was it was critical of people in Ireland speaking about mental health who don't have qualifications in mental health. Basically people who aren't experts speaking about mental health in a public forum. And it took particular swipes at me. Now I don't mind if someone's like critiquing me. It's an, an opinion columnist is entitled to fucking critique and offer opinions on me or anything I'm doing. That's not the issue. The column really, I felt, I was disappointed with it because it really misrepresented what I do. The headline of the article was, Our pop mental health gurus are just blind by leading the blind. And I was really disappointed with the article, not because it criticised me, but because it, 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 it misrepresented what I do. Um, Like, a, a, a mental health guru is someone who positions themselves, themselves as an expert, who is someone who says, I have the solution, you must listen to me, listen to my solution, and follow me, and pay me money to hear my solution. That's what mental health gurus do. Now, I don't do that, because I'm not a bollocks. I'm not a prick. That's what arseholes do. And when I speak about mental health in this podcast, every time I always have a duty of care, where I say to you, I'm not an expert. I am not an expert. What I am is I'm going I'm to speak about my own experiences. So I'm someone who suffered with mental health issues, who does suffer with mental health issues and I use tools that I learned through training and through being in therapy that I use every single day to help me and what I'm going to do is speak about how I use these things to help me and then if you want to listen and if you get something from it, then fair play to you. But ultimately, the only responsible and safe thing I can do is speak about my emotions, my experiences. And that's what I do. And I'm not qualified in psychology or mental health. I did. I studied it for three years. I studied psychotherapy, but I didn't finish my qualification. So therefore, I'm not qualified. But I tell you one thing that that three years of study gave me. I know when to shut the fuck up. I know what the boundaries of responsible mental health speak and irresponsible mental health speak are. I know what those boundaries are, so I don't fucking cross them. You'll never hear me speak about suicide. You'll never hear me speak about uh, medication. I don't speak about mental illness. What I will do in these situations is I'll bring on an expert. I'll get an expert in their field to come onto this podcast 
and speak to me about those issues. Trauma. If I want to speak about trauma, I'm not going to say shit about it. What I'm going to do is I'm bring, going to bring on Dr. Dr. Sharon Lambert, who's an expert in trauma. The brain, neuroscience. I'll bring on Dr. Sabina Brennan. Psychiatry, medication, pharmaceuticals. I speak to Dr. Pat Bracken. I bring experts onto this podcast when I want to discuss issues that would be really irresponsible and unsafe for me to discuss. I'm not setting anything to do with mental health. I'm not saying that I have fucking solutions. I don't do any of the things that a fucking guru does. And most importantly, I I wear my fallibility on my fucking, on my sleeve. What could be more fallible than saying, I'm not a fucking expert, don't listen to me. But you can listen to me speak about my personal experience if you like. So it was a disappointing article. And I ended up becoming the top trending fucking subject on Twitter, which isn't very enjoyable when you're actively trying to get the fuck away from Twitter. 99% of uh, the responses were people in support of me, and it was great to see to see experts in psychology in Ireland come out in support of me and say, I listened to Blind Boy's podcast and he, he's not being unethical with mental health. And that's another important thing to remember too. Loads of experts listen to this podcast. A lot of experts in mental health listen to this podcast. And I haven't slipped up yet. But if I fucking did slip up, one of them would contact me immediately and say, that thing you said on this week's podcast, you shouldn't have said that. That's what would happen. So I have this, I have an extra barrier of informal professional regulation there. But I don't really have to worry about that because... I'm 100% confident that the way I speak about mental health in this podcast is ethical and safe and responsible. I really stand over anything I've ever said. And why am I speaking about it? You know, I tend to just, I tend to ignore, we'll say, bad reviews and things like that. I have to say it because this is a huge newspaper and they've misrepresented me. They've misrepresented what I do. And I don't think the journalist in question was being mean. I don't think they were being mean. There's a few, like, shitty comments in there. But that's that's what an opinion columnist does. If an opinion columnist is critiquing you, they're going to put in some shitty comments. That's part of the game. That's fine. But I don't think they were being mean. I think they're simply... They weren't informed about what I do. And it's because of this... So there's this weird thing in the Irish media space. I don't think it's just Irish, it's global. I went into this exact issue in detail on a podcast a few months back called Crosby, Stills and Hash. So listen back to that. But what's happening with the media space in Ireland is you have what I'd call establishment media, which is television, radio, newspapers, media that's been around a long time. You have establishment media and then you have what I do, which is online media. But there's a huge gulf between the two and it's widening. So there's people in this country who just read newspapers and just watch TV and just listen to radio. And to these people, they're not aware of my existence at all. They don't know that I've got a fucking podcast that has nearly 30 million listens in three fucking years. They're not aware of these things. They're not even aware that I have a fucking BBC series because it's over in England. So to these people, 
they're sitting down watching TV and then every so often, once or twice a year, this lunatic with a plastic bag on his head comes on the television and speaks about mental health. And it terrifies a lot of people because they're like, isn't that fella from 10 years ago who had that song about the horse? Because that's the last time they remember me being a part of establishment media. So people who are more conservative or older, they have a big problem with me. They're like, who is this fella with a plastic bag on his head speaking about mental health? Why do we listen to him? Who is he? Like also this week I was really coming under heavy fire online from Catholics. In particular, uh, some fella, he's like editor of this giant Catholic newspaper or something. And he was having a pop at me for wearing a bag and giving out that I'm wearing a bag in my head. And I'm like, where's this coming from? Why the fuck are all the Catholics pissed off all of a sudden? And then I realised RTE had replayed my episode where I speak to Joe Duffy about religion. So it's like, oh, okay, they got their twice yearly dose of blind boy on the telly and they're fucking enraged because they're like, who is this irrelevant plastic bag asshole? Who is he? Why is it? Why? Why should we listen to him? Where did he come from? I'm terrified. And it makes certain people get very reactionary and angry when they see me on TV. And I I think that was the situation with this journalist who wrote the article. Because what they were commenting on, it wasn't this podcast. It was, I went on to the Claire Byrne show last week, which is a, it's a nighttime uh, current affairs show. Quite a serious political show. They gave me a call. Blind by, will you come on for 10 minutes and will you, no, come on for five minutes and speak about your mental health experience during the lockdown. So I said, yeah. So another problem with establishment media is you've got five fucking minutes to talk about something very complex. So in order to do that, I keep it mad simple, very, very simple and basic so that it can help someone who's listening or engage them. So the critical article that was written about me was written about my appearance on that. They said that I'm basically talking out of my arse that I just read Wikipedia and listened to a few Jordan Peterson videos. I don't listen to fucking Jordan Peterson, you know well. So the, the most bizarre thing about the article is that the journalist tried to give me a compliment by saying he shouldn't be talking about mental health but he's a really talented artist but we haven't seen his art in many years because of cancel culture. So the journalist thinks that oh, Blind Boy from Horse Outside in 2010 on the television he mustn't make any music anymore because cancel culture won't let him. So now all he does is come on the TV twice a year to talk about mental health. Now the article does call me a podcaster but I don't think the journalist has listened to my podcast because if they did they wouldn't have written that article. Um, I don't think they're aware that I've written two books in the past four fucking years that has nothing to do with mental health, books of fiction. They don't know I'm making music on Twitch every week. They don't know about my BBC series over in the UK because it's in the UK on the BBC player. But none of this gets represented or recorded in Irish establishment media because it hasn't happened on Irish establishment media. So I think this journalist was just firmly entrenched in what they see on traditional media and hadn't done a hell of a lot of research on what I'm actually doing online. If they'd actually listened to this podcast or knew what the podcast is about, they'd have never said it because they'd, they'd hear me speaking about mental health. They'd see that I'm... Like, one of the angles of the article was we don't listen to experts enough. And I agree with that. 
but my podcast, I, I've given more fucking airtime to experts in psychology than I'd say any of Irish television has done in the past fucking year. Like, wh- why, why doesn't someone write an article in establishment media that says, This week, Blind Boy sat down with an expert in mental health. They spoke for an hour and a half and more people listened to it than watched the Late Late Show this week. It's just fucking nuts. It's bizarre. But then I go on Claire Byrne for five minutes, speak about mental health in the most simple terms possible because I've got five minutes, and it's worthy of a Sunday opinion column, which critiques how simple my message was, but doesn't take into account that it's simple because I've got five fucking minutes because that's how TV works. So the whole thing boils down to this really weird problem that we have that I can't understand where establishment media will only recognise the words of somebody if it has occurred on another form of establishment media. And if anything happens outside of establishment media, if it happens on online media, then it doesn't exist. And I see takes like this every week on Facebook, right? Every week on Facebook, someone's dad writes, who's this fucking idiot with a plastic bag on his head? He should stick to doing songs about horses in 2010, Who made him an authority on mental health? Now, I don't give a fuck when that's a Facebook comment. That's part of my job. I don't give a shit about that. That that person's dad's entitled to write that comment. But I just, I don't like it when it's, when those views are represented in an opinion column in a large newspaper that's referring to me as a guru. It's like, don't pay attention to the five minutes on Claire Byrne. Pay attention to the hours and hours of much more in-depth work with representation from proper professionals that I'm putting out for free to a fucking way, way bigger audience, way bigger audience than whoever saw me on that TV show. Surely that's what should actually matter. That's, that's what's more relevant. That's what more people are choosing to hear. And I agree with some of the points in the article. I, do, I don't agree with the... I don't think we should be hearing less from people's lived experience with mental health. Okay? Um, it's very important for people to speak about their mental health, to speak about their personal experiences because it normalizes conversation. And through normalizing conversation, we destigmatize it. And through destigmatizing, people have more of a chance to try and help themselves or try to access services. I do agree that we need to hear more from experts, but you need to open up your ears and search in different places. We're actually hearing loads from experts in the podcast space, not just my podcast, many podcasts. Television can't provide the space that podcasts can provide for very large, robust, in-depth mental health conversations. It just can't. There's too many adverts. It needs to slot into a time. Television will figure out a way, and I say this as someone who works in TV, TV will figure out a way to fuck it up to simplify it down so that it's not engaging. Podcasts can go on for three hours. They can be unedited, full conversations. They're a lot more engaging. And these conversations are happening on podcasts or on YouTube. But TV just simply can't provide the same space. Now, how do I know this? One of the things the article critiques me for is the journalist doesn't like me speaking about psychology, but also doesn't like me speaking about philosophy. I've got a master's degree. I have a master's degree that covered critical theory, so I am actually qualified to critique 
culture and society using philosophy. Does that make me an expert? I don't think it makes me an expert, but it qualifies me to teach at third level, which to me makes it okay to speak about philosophy on TV or on a podcast. And in 2017, I made a TV show called The Rubber Bandit's Guide to Reality, and it was a half an hour in which I tried to cram in a history of Western philosophy into a fucking half an hour. And I did my very best. But was it the best I could have done? Absolutely not. Why? Because the format of television does not allow the space for the complexity and nuance required for such large conversations. So instead, I do it on my fucking podcast where I can speak as long as I like and it's far more effective. And here's the most important thing and this is, I think, where we all need to direct uh, kind of constructive anger. Having conversations about whether there's enough experts on television or should we be listening to podcasts about mental health? Let's look at the structural issue here. It is a bad thing that people listen to my podcast for in lieu of mental health services because I know that I get mails from people. That's what some people do. People in this country can't access the mental health services that they need because these mental health services don't exist. There's a structural failing where people cannot access the mental health services that they need. So people in crisis are turning to fucking podcasts and listening to me, who isn't qualified, speaking about my lived experience. And I'm going to continue doing it. I'm going to continue speaking about mental health. But let's improve the fucking mental health system. It need, a, a systematic change needs to happen so that people are listening to podcasts about mental health alongside fucking robust services. Maybe they won't even need to if they feel they're getting the services they need. Why would they possibly want to listen to a fucking podcast if they're given the opportunity to embark on their own personal journey with professionals? That's what we need. That's what we need to be talking about. This is just distracting shit. And one last thing, one last little thing. So I'm continually receiving critique, uh, and the article mentioned it, of speaking about mental health while wearing a plastic bag on my head. This this makes people, this makes some people very, very angry towards me that I speak about serious issues while at the same time looking like a fucking clown. And people demand, take the bag off your head. Take that bag off your head if you're going to be talking about something serious. Be serious. And what I'll say is, these people, they only think they want me to be serious. They're not asking me to be serious. What they're asking me to be is solemn. And to be solemn is to engage in the surface level performance of seriousness. And solemnity and seriousness are not the same thing. I can be really passionate and critical and caring about something as important as mental health while having a big silly bag on my head. If I took the bag off and wore a suit, I'd be having the exact same conversations. I'd just be doing it in a more solemn fashion. And always be cautious around solemnity. Solemnity is the performance of seriousness. That's what politicians do. They can wear a suit. They can speak properly. They can have a lovely car. They can perform what seriousness looks like while lying 
talking out of their fucking arse, bullshitting. Our politicians who are failing to address the mental health crisis or failing to improve the structural issues that we have, they're using solemnity as a tool to avoid conversation, to not take it seriously, to lie. They're using solemnity. I'm a politician, I speak properly, I'm in a fucking suit. Look at my office. This is solemnity, the performance of seriousness, which can be used as a trick. It can be used to trick us. Solemnity is used to trick us all the time. You look at the most solemn things in society. The military, the judicial system, religion, royalty. These are all institutions that use solemnity as a performance of seriousness to sell us something fundamentally absurd. And I'm capable of being serious about something and having authentic caring conversations around mental health without needing to be solemn. I can do all this while having a big silly bag on my head. And the thing is with solemnity, solemnity never allows fun, silliness, spontaneity, play or humour in. Because those things are the opposite of solemnity. And I would argue that for us to have authentic, meaningful conversations about something as complex as mental health, you have to include the full gamut of human experience. And humour, fun, playfulness and spontaneity are a part of that. Mental health conversations must have some degree of fun and humour there. These are part of the human condition. So when you choose to remove elements of the human condition from mental health conversations, now you're not having an authentic conversation. You're having a solemn conversation. Another reason I wear a bag on my head is simply for privacy, so that I, so that I can live um, a normal life. I I have um, like a big enough profile that I receive quite a lot of harassment and shitty talk online. It's just a fact of my life. Really like the fact that I can park that, that it just exists on my laptop and on my phone. I would hate to receive that amount of harassment. In a public space, I really wouldn't like that. That would be a living hell. I wouldn't like that one bit. But that's one reason I wear a plastic bag. Second reason, the plastic bag allows me to have much more honest conversations about my mental health. Last week I spoke about... I was I was quite vulnerable last week. I spoke to you about things that are really bothering me. Personal things. I wouldn't do that if it meant going to Dunn stores later that day and then a stranger coming up talking to me and saying, I heard your podcast this morning where you spoke about some shit that you were really insecure about. I don't think I'd like that conversation in real life. That would... That would be too much of a infiltration of my emotional boundaries so I simply wouldn't share my my inner fears and inner insecurities and vulnerabilities online in case someone said it to me in a pub I'm a human being I'm a fucking human being the same as yourself my plastic bag allows me to express more honest vulnerability on this podcast because the risk the risk is lessened because people can't just see me in the shop they don't know who the fuck I am also my bag is an act of performance art. There's an element of performance art to it. Performance art that critiques things like solemnity. Performance art that asks questions around data. 
this is something that will become more apparent over the next decade as facial recognition cameras become more normalised, which they will. And quite a lot of people will want to start wearing masks in public places to exercise consent around their facial data. So if I go on to a serious TV show to speak about issues of mental health or philosophy or whatever, yes, I'm being sincere and I'm caring about what I'm speaking about, but there's an element of performance art there. And how is my performance of wearing this bag on my head any different to the performance of an expert or a politician who has a persona that they use for television? Like every person who appears on a panel show to speak about a subject, it could be a fucking Trinity College professor speaking about their area of expertise. They're also wearing a mask. They're wearing a mask too. And that mask is the performance that they have developed for how they speak on television. And you know what? If that performance that they've curated for themselves is too fucking solemn, then they won't communicate with an audience. Their words may not ring true, because their mask of being a big professional academic, a solemn academic, is preventing authentic conversation. So all of this is in my conscious awareness when I appear on a serious TV show with a fucking bag in my head. So that's the 25 minute mark there now. So if you're someone who's just here to listen to my conversation with Sinead O'Connor, that meant that you fast forwarded. And you know what? Fair play to you. Because, yeah, if you don't know who I am, the the previous 25 minutes would have been quite a bizarre experience for you. Sinead O'Connor, who also go by the name Shuhada Sadaquat, um, very kindly agreed to have a chat with me this week because she has a book coming out on the 1st of June. It's a memoir called Rememberings, which is an autobiography about her life and career, which I've read excerpts from, and it's fantastic. Not only is it interesting to read if you're interested in in, in Sinead's life and career, the way it's written is fucking beautiful. It's a beautifully written book, and you can't beat a biography that's an autobiography. One like an artist writing about their own life in their own words, and bringing into that their talent and skill as a as a writer. So it's it's a really special it's a special book, and I recommend you go out and get it on June first. Rememberings by Sinead O'Connor. I've I've admired Sinead for years. Sinead is one of the most important living Irish artists. She has consistently been original and creative in her music throughout her career. Like even to the point at the Grammys in the early or in the late eighties, I think it was, they had to invent a new category called postmodern just to decide what the fuck to call her music she has drawn from multiple influences she's mixed reggae with Irish Shano singing hip hop punk just consistent artistic integrity and the critical appraisal of her work often gets overshadowed instead in the media by comments around her behaviour or her mental health And I think this does a great injustice to the integrity of her art 
And my personal opinion, I think it exists because of misogyny. Um, male artists get to be called complicated geniuses or eccentric creatives. Whereas women artists who exhibit the same behaviour are questioned, chastised, paternalised and excluded. Also, at multiple points in her career, she's engaged in acts of protest. Protest around things that she believes in. And not performative protest, but actual acts of protest that truly upset the structures that are being protested against, which is rare and risky. So this chat that I have with Sinead, I want to chat with Sinead, the artist, about art. So we speak about art, we speak about the creative process, religion. That's what this conversation is. When I speak to an artist that I respect, I want to hear about how they make art and what art means to them. So I'm going to do a really quick ocarina pause now so that I don't interrupt the chat with Sinead. For anyone who doesn't know what an ocarina pause is, there might be uh, a digitally inserted advert might come in right now. So I play a Spanish clay whistle in order to fucking to give you a little warning so you don't get surprised by some advert Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, that was the ocarina pause. You would have heard a digitally inserted advert. I don't know what it was. It was algorithmically generated based on your search preferences. Um, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. All right. This podcast is my full time job. It's how I earn a living. I adore this work that I do. I'm so happy to be doing it. And my patrons make it possible for me to have the time to make this podcast. So if you're enjoying this podcast, if you're listening to it regularly, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. Being a patron as well means that I'm not beholden to any advertisers on this podcast. No advertiser can tell me what to speak about or should I adjust my content either way or don't talk about this, do talk about that. They can't do that because it's a fucking Patreon. So if someone wants to advertise on this podcast, they have to do it on my terms and I can turn down quite a lot of advertisers too if I'm not into whatever they're doing, okay? But if you can't afford to be a patron, that's fine. Don't worry about it. You don't have to be a patron. This podcast is free. It's free to everybody. And the model that I have, it's kind of based on kindness and soundness. So if you can afford to become a patron, then you're not only paying for your podcast, you're paying for someone who can't afford the podcast. Everyone gets a podcast. I earn a living. 
what more do you want? All right. It's a lovely model. Keeps me happy. And I have a sense of fucking security and I'm getting paid for my work. Perfect. Catch me on Twitch once a week, Thursday nights, half eight. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. I'm making a, a live, a never ending live musical to the events of a video game. And it's good crack. Leave a review of the podcast. Share it with a friend. That's really important, especially if you're not from Ireland. If you're from America or Canada, whatever, tell a friend about this podcast. And do the same for whatever independent podcast that you like. Podcasts are podcasts are nice because they're made by a small team of people who are genuinely passionate about what they're doing. Okay? And when you find one of these podcasts, it's always important to support it and share it. Because the podcast space is starting to become flooded by a lot of new podcasts that have a lot of big money behind them. And they're not necessarily being made from a place of passion and care so it's important to support small independent podcasts because they're being pushed out of the space at the moment without further ado here is the conversation that I had with the absolutely fantastic and brilliant Sinead O'Connor I'm just going to lie a fag as well I've been dying to meet you for years I've been tech or what do you call it tweeting you for years to say can I do the podcast but I'm not Sinead, sure I, 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 I literally I thought that was someone pretending to be you I was like there's no fucking way this is actually yeah. Connor wants to be on my podcast yeah man I've been secretly in love with you for years I've been dying to get new fucking <laughs> podcast <laughs> no stop no stop yeah, totally but thank you Sinead like that's uh, mortifyingly humbling for me and I've been an admirer of your work for, for years. And the first thing I want to know about, the first thing I want to ask you is about your creative process, about how you make your art and, and what the creative process means for you. Like, for me, I, I, I achieve personal meaning through creativity. If When I create something, it can be a short story, a song, doing my podcast... When I'm creating, I have a sense of meaning and purpose and then I can achieve something close to happiness. Yeah. That, how do you feel about creativity and, and your well-being? Well, <clears throat> I think I I have the opposite perhaps to other people. I'm not inclined to be creative if I'm not well. I'm inclined yeah. to be creative when I am well. Um, in terms of my process, um, what I do is... I don't sit down and try to write songs. What happens is I'd be washing the dishes or doing some normal thing and a bit of a tune will start playing itself inside me. Wow. So sometimes with words, sometimes just melody, sometimes just words. And I'll leave it alone because I know that the following week when I'm pushing the pram around or doing the shopping, another little bit. Do you ever hear the way whales sing their history? Yeah. You know, the way um, the researchers believe that they're singing their history because every time a baby is born, there seems to be another verse in the song, you know? Well, I, there's a, they did a study recently on whales that when uh, humans started to hunt whales in the North Atlantic, the amount of whales that started to get caught over time disappeared. Right. It wasn't because there was less whales, it because the whales were able to establish a language and culture that could tell other whales about the danger of humans. So yeah, they went somewhere exactly, else. Exactly. Well, the thing, what I, that's, what happens in me is basically the song will create itself over the course of a few months by sending me little bits inside myself. 
at a time like and I won't sit down to work out the chords until the thing is already written inside me and I won't sing it until I get to the studio I've only sang it in my head but so that's my process that it's almost like my subconscious is creating the songs and all I have to do is let it do it in its own time if I get in the way of that it, it all goes pear-shaped you know do you do anything to, like, do you ever freak out that you might forget it? If a good melody or a good lyric or a theme comes in, do you trust the process of, yeah. I can hold on to this in my body? Yeah, absolutely. It, it always, it will come back. It's not that I have to even hold on to wow. it. It will keep nagging at me. Do you know the way, I don't know if this is the same for every person, but like I wake up every morning with a song in my head of, from somewhere, some some record that I've heard in the past or, you know? Yeah. Well, it's a bit like that, you know, the, the thing will just keep singing itself to you, you know, until it's complete. And then, no, I, I don't worry about forgetting it because it's a bit like ordinary memory. Like I don't take pictures, which is a bit weird. Like I've never took photos in my life mm-hmm. because I figure my brain will remember what I want to remember. You yeah. know? So it's the same way with, with songs. I don't I don't worry that I'll forget them because you don't forget the, the good ones to keep playing themselves back to you because they want to get heard. Subconscious is a terribly powerful thing, you know? Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, so it won't shut the hell up until it gets expressed, you know? Um, With your new book, <clears throat> Rememberings, like, I've read excerpts of it and the prose is fucking gorgeous. Like, the prose <laughs> is just lovely. I mean... One of the, the one of the lines where where you 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 say and are you into Randy Newman because it reminded me of Randy Newman. Well, actually, do you know, I, I'm not into I'm not mainly into him, but my if you ha- if you held a gun to my head and said what is your favorite song that was ever written, it is Randy Newman's Wedding in Cherokee County. Ah, yeah, lovely, lovely, isn't it? Yes, and but, he he has a song, he's got a song called Germany Before the War, and the lyric in it that stuck out to me was a little girl has lost her way with hair of gold and eyes of grey reflected in his glasses as he watches her and the prose in your book reminded me of that that detail your line was I'm staring at the reflection of my eyes in the window of the back seat of my father's car yeah which is just fucking gorgeous because you've painted a picture with a sentence okay. I, I can't I can't read that sentence without a very rich visual image in my head good well then that's my job done i suppose that's the same with songs you know when you got three minutes you got to make it rhyme and you have to stop people in their tracks and bring them into another world so i tried to write the a lot certainly the first half the book i tried to write the pieces as if they were songs you know i I can see it because like the sentences are so short yeah each sentence you could very easily put it into a song and you you chose to write it as well like you're speaking about the past but you're writing it in the first person here and now yeah what's that choice about well the reason the book came about in the first place was about in 2014 i used to do uh i had two funny sections on my website um one was letters to bob dylan where i'd write Mm -hmm. random letters about cabbages and the price of eggs and you know stupid stupid shit you know but the other was a tour blog so because i'm a weed head and not a drinker Mm -hmm. i would leave the venue straight after a gig go back to the hotel and have a spliff while the others were getting drunk 
Mm-hmm. And while I'm waiting for them to come back to the hotel, I would spend about an hour writing a tour blog, which is just a diary of the day and the funny shit that happened in the day. So somebody who knows the publisher had seen this and called him and said, you know, you, you should call Sinead and see about a book. So the publisher said to me that he would like me to write the pieces in the present tense, mm-hmm. in similar to the blogs, you know, and then occasionally he switched things around to the past when he went to edit, but generally left it in the present. But it was, it was his idea and it was a great fucking idea because it made me be able to create a sense of you know what's in the room what color are the handkerchiefs you know what does it smell like what color is the carpet do you know what i mean so you you feel that by what writing in the first person was a better way for you to a- directly access memories yeah writing in the present tense it, it allowed the present yeah to, it allowed me to access certain types of memories sensory memories what did it smell like what did it look like what color wow. was what did it sound like do you know yeah, it allowed me to just put myself back there in a way that wasn't at all traumatized or anything, and it also allowed me to be to see the funny side. You know, it was kind of a weird mixture in your head of past and present because it, mm-hmm. you could look back and find things amusing that perhaps weren't amusing at the time. Do you know? Is there any is like, did you find yourself writing about things from your past maybe that you just don't think about a lot? that you don't think about them and then they come up during the process of writing? I, I didn't write about anything that I didn't feel like writing about. Again, I just trusted the subconscious the same as I do, do with songs. Okay, yeah. Like, as I was saying in some other interview recently, you know, the thing is that the subconscious will block things for a very good reason and bring yeah. things for a very good reason. So, you know, same as my songwriting process, I trusted in that which I did not remember. Do you know what I'm saying? So I didn't try to remember anything. I didn't Google anything or anything like that, you know. So I just let the subconscious do the talking, you know. And how long did it take to write this book? What What was the whole process? Uh, it took about six months to write it. Wow. I wrote the first half in 2015, and then I didn't write anything for four years. And then I wrote the second half in uh, 2019. And then it took it took a year and a half or so to do the editing and get all that right. And was the process like was it feverish where you're just typing and typing, or was it slower and a bit more considered with some breaks? You know, I think the first half was was feverish up until the night before Saturday Night Live. Ah, yeah, okay. And, and then I didn't write anything for four years, and I started again then with the night before Saturday Night Live, and it wasn't so feverish. The first half I, I wrote on a laptop, the second half I dictated. So it was a completely wow. different process. That's why there's kind of two different voices in the book, not also because of the four-year gap. But um, yeah. I think the first half was perhaps a bit feverish, only because I, I love writing, you know, so mm-hmm. in really enjoying the, the process of writing. And I loved, uh, my publisher was almost like an English teacher. He was so encouraging all the time, and I loved impressing him, you know. <laughs> So, you know, I, I really, uh, I only wrote feverishly because I love writing, you know. So, mentioning there Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live is where you ripped up the photograph of the Pope mm. on live TV and you were very heavily chastised for it at the time. There was a lot of anger towards you. How does it feel now for, like, young people in Ireland look at that moment and 
they really, really respect what you did in the context of what we've learned since about the Catholic Church. There's people who really see you as a person who spoke truth to power and put integrity and protest ahead of your career, essentially. Well, see, the thing for me was, you know, A, I didn't notice that I was getting killed for it because I was too busy getting on with my own life. Fair play. B, B, you know, as it says in the book, you know, a lot of people say that that's derailed my career, but I actually feel like what derailed my career was having a number one record. I wasn't a pop star and wasn't a pop star by nature. And it was extremely uncomfortable in that arena, as were the media and everybody else around me who expected me to act like a pop star. Sure, I may as well have been speaking Zulu. I hadn't a clue what they were talking about. I came... Wow. I came from a tradition of punk and protest music, you know, so and, and very spiritualized artists throughout the 70s, you know. And um, so I was just really being myself. And it's all about how you define success. I don't define success by how much money you make. I define success personally by, you know, did I keep the contract I made when I made my Holy Communion and my confirmation, which was to, you know, What's the best way to put it? To to stay true to you know the very Christian beliefs that were drilled into me by the Catholic Church, in fact, which were you know the rejection of the material world, you know, in favor of the truth, you know. So I was just being me. I was just being a punk. That's what that's what punks do. It was Geldof's fault to some extent because that awful song from Greece had been number one for fucking months in England, and when the rap. The Rat song, Rat Trap, went to number one. Geldof goes on top of the pops and rips up a picture of Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and also I had been godfathered musically by Bob Dylan all my life, who was, of course, a protest singer. Mm-hmm. And in particular, an album of his called Slow Train Coming was... Oh, was, that's gorgeous. That's one of his first Christian albums, isn't it? It's the very first Christian album. But yeah. That, that album to me was like a father. It was literally a male role model and particularly the opening song got to serve somebody. Yeah. Uh, it talks about, you know, what kind of artist you want to be, you know, maybe a rock and roll addict prancing on a stage, money and drugs at your command, women in a cage. It goes on like that. It teaches you, well, taught me anyway, what type of artist I wanted to be. And all of these artists throughout the 70s that I was listening to you know the impressions and all these people it was nothing but politicized and spiritualized music the day john lennon dies everything changes music becomes fake for a decade synthesizers fake guitars electric drums everybody talking about nothing but love or abandonment fucking uh, all about how you look the big hairdos everything the way you yeah. sound the way senses work if you're looking you're not you can't listen properly you need to close your eyes to really hear you know and were you enjoying Slow Train coming? Like, you were already a Dylan fan before Slow Train, surely? Well, the first the first Dylan song I ever heard was Baby Please Stop Crying when I'm about 11. Mm-hmm. And then I think I'm only about 13 when Slow Train Coming comes out. And at the time, uh, uh, as was the case with many families in Ireland, uh, my parents had broken up. And my mother, as was the case with many mothers, uh, wasn't allowing my father to come near us. And the mm-hmm. law in Ireland didn't protect fathers at all in that regard. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, in my childish, magical way of thinking, that record became my father. Slow Train Coming became my father figure, you know. So oh. I was lucky for, uh, from that point of view, you know. And one thing you said there, which I find really interesting. 
sorry, also the, the terribly important thing about Slow Train Coming was if you grew up in the theocracy, you would know, I mean, my God, the religious music you were hearing was so uncool and unsexy. Yeah. I mean, it make God cry, to be fair. But but Slow Train, the interesting thing, that Slow Train wasn't cool when it came out. Was, uh, Dylan, was, no. was he in that uncool period where they're like, oh, he's just an old man doing Christian songs now, fuck him. Uh, well, no, he wasn't old and it wasn't uncool. I mean, you know, of course people slag Dylan off because they're jealous, you know. It, yeah. was, it was unusual and brave, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a great motherfucking record, no matter what the lyrics are about. But the thing was, he was the first person to make religious music sexy and cool. And in fact, nobody else has ever done it since, you know. Got a certain mm-hmm. but he's a sexy track. He's got Sly, Sly, yeah. he's got Mark Knopfler. Yeah. He, all the songs on there, Precious Angel is one of the most sensual tracks you could ever hear, you know, so I, well certainly I was never exposed to anybody who thought the record was uncool and if they did, well sure they were fucking boring twats anyway, you know. And how do you react to critique of your own work, like like bad reviews of your work? Do you know what I don't read good reviews or bad reviews because I think yes. they're both equally dangerous Yeah. you know, I don't think it ma- it's none of my business what anybody yeah. thinks, you know is that a difficult thing for you to do or does that come naturally? No, it just comes naturally because, you know, in my case also, no matter whether it's a good, it could be the greatest review on earth, but they'll always drag up my fucking past crimes and misdemeanors, you know. So it's not about the music. <laughs> no, you have to wade through all the shit about mental health, blah, blah, mm-hmm. to get to the review. So there's always something that makes me depressed or fucking cry or not sleep. Yeah. So... I don't bother reading them either way. And also because, as I say, you can't, you shouldn't be buying into good or bad. It's, it's, it's none of your business what anyone thinks of it. Only reason you should be making a record is you're going to go mental if you don't. Once you've made it, put it out and enjoy screaming it or into microphones around the world. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. If you get too caught up, good or bad, you're fucked, you know? Um, you're very f- uh, fluid with mixing genres like the, you you released a Shanos album in the 90s yeah and like a song like uh Oroche de Bahawalia and you you mix that like that's that's a traditional Irish song and then you put a reggae groove on it yeah totally but, like what what's what's your thinking behind doing things like that I just wanted to you know lift these songs are quite beautiful you know it's a bit like the the Hail Mary in Irish like do you remember the way they made us drill it out, you know? Yeah. We're a doll on the blah, 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 blah. It was the same with those songs, Bodhi and Islamy and, and Orosh the Vahawala. They never told you what it meant. No. Yeah, they never yeah. told you the emotions of, of what it meant. Like Orosh the Vahawala is a war song, you know? It's mm-hmm. a real uh, passionate kind of Rastafari element in it, you know? And the same with Bajin Islamy in many ways, you know. I just wanted to uh, lift it off the pages, as it were, and put some, you know, life into it and maybe introduce it to a new generation of kids, you know. And was Irish traditional music, how, how much did that play in, in your music growing up? Oh, God, it didn't at all. It was the uncoolest thing on earth when I was growing up. It was so, it was only squares that made Shano's mm-hmm. Irish music, you know, until Donald Lunny came along, obviously, and created Moving Hearts, and that they were like mm-hmm. the peoples in, in terms of Irish music, you know. So, no, God almighty, we all tried to get as far away from, you know, traditional Irish music as we could, the same as the charismatic and religious music. And what was the light bulb moment where you're like, this is actually really fucking cool, and I don't need to be embarrassed of this stuff, and this is mine? 
Well, you know, the first musician outside of Shan Nose who sings in an Irish accent is Bob Geldof. Yeah. Up until that point, it was really uncool for Irish rockers to sing in Irish accent. We were all singing in American accents. I did the same in my first two albums, you know. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think I got to the point as a singer, as an Irish singer, where I felt, you know, it would be a sin not to record these songs. They're beautiful ghosts. I My particular talent is, is for interpreting songs. I lo- I'm, a, I'm a Stanislavski method singer. Um, these are gorgeous. What does that mean, though? Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Stanislavski acting where, you know, you, you feel the feelings and you are the character. And it's very hard to explain. You'd nearly need to Google it. And is this when you're performing a song, you... you, you... It's it's another worldly type of feeling that you have. Mm, it's that you become the song. I, I studied what's called bel canto singing. It's the same as Maria Callas. You know when you watch Maria Callas singing, there's no mm-hmm. difference between her and the song. She suddenly is the song. She's feeling the feelings and feeling the emotions and telling the story. It's not about notes and scales. And Jack Brel does that as well. Yeah, and you're riveted. So I wanted to do the same thing with the Shan No songs because, again, often they can be sung with zero emotion. You know, a lot of people sing it with emotion, obviously, but quite often they get sang with no emotion, you know, just belted out. Like, And I guess I wanted to put some emotion. But the way I see those songs, they're like ghosts. No one knows who wrote them. They're, they're part of Irish history, and it's important to put them down and keep singing them. But the ghost kind of got into me and, and wanted me to sing them. It was as if the ghost just climbed inside me and wanted me to sing them. Interestingly, Shan Nose is very like blues. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you look at the blues tradition, they're all singing the same songs over and over, just like we mm-hmm. are with Shan Nose. It's almost like the history books. The singers come along and they keep singing it, and it's important that they keep getting sung. Again, back to the whale song business, you know. So the ghosts of the songs came into me and said to me, here, bitch, you're supposed to be singing us if you're anyway good a singer. Do. And to be honest with you, I think it's the best singing I ever did in my life was on channels now. Wow. Yeah. And did you get any flack at the time from Irish traditional purists? Because that's a pretty radical thing to be doing in the 90s. No. Mixing genres like that. No, none whatsoever. The thing is, like people who sing Shan Nose, you know, they're not envious people. They are doing the same as I did. They're expressing these ghosts that have moved into their bodies as singers and asked to be expressed and sung, you know. So there's no uh, sense of, you know, I'm not sharing my recipe. It's not like that, you know. Okay, because this is a communal thing. This is Mehel. This is yeah. Irish. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's soul singing. There. So there's no jealousy. There's no isms or ists about it. No, quite the opposite. You said something earlier there when you were speaking about your definition of success and you think back to a, a, the contract you made when you made your communion, which I found really beautiful, which was you said you made a contract with to, to reject materialism and things like that yeah and which is interesting because I, I don't look back fondly on my communion I my communion I just go they were trying to get me to think about sin as a child and I'm like I, I'm a fucking child a child can't sin but you yeah. have a very different view well I was talking more about my confirmation but I see the two as similar contracts the communion and the confirmation and my attitude has always been that I signed those contracts before I ever signed one in the music business. And success to me is keeping to those contracts and fuck the ones I signed in the music business, you know. 
Um, so no, I don't know. No, I I'm lucky kind of sponge is what I call myself that I only sucked up the good of Catholicism and I I was able to throw out the bathwater and keep the baby. You know. Yeah. So no, I never even cogged on that they were trying to drill into us that we were sinners and everything. That never even fucking struck me. I was just in love with the beauty of the beauty that was within it. Do you know? And particularly in the songs. You know, See, I used to get freaked out, man. I used to get scared of statues and shit. You know, I, oh, I really yeah. didn't like it. Oh, uh, yeah. No, but I was just in love with this idea of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Lee Perry says the Holy Spirit is music. Mm-hmm. And I really had that feeling from a very young age. Like I just was born knowing that there is a Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. I don't think it cares to call it God or Fred or Daisy. Mm-hmm. I was just born knowing that it was in my body. And um, there wasn't anything the Catholic like, church could do to remove it, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky. I didn't take on board any of the darkness. I was able to see through it. Did you, did you become a priest for a while? I did. How did you go about that? It was a Rastafari act. Um, well, there are approximately 650, if not 700, priests and bishops around the world, females, and um, the the thing was, you know, there were bishops who were prepared to ordain women. Once you ordain mm-hmm. a rabbit, it's a priest. It's a magical ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I was of the mind of, you know, why are the women waiting for yes as an answer from the men? What the fuck are we all sitting around waiting for them mm-hmm. to get permission for? <laughs> you know, so as soon as I found out that there were bishops willing to ordain women uh, and in Ireland, I was the second one knocking at the door. The first one in Ireland, I can't remember her name now. She's still around. She She's a hermit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was next to knock at the door. Partly a Rastafari act as well, you know, because Rastafari is all about telling the Catholic Church to go fuck themselves, calling them blood drinkers and vampires and all of that stuff. So, But also, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a priest. But, of course, I couldn't because I was a girl. I didn't want to be a nun because I didn't fancy washing shirts for the rest of my life. But I, I used to pretend to be saying masses and all kinds of things. Now, I was a very religious, not religious, I, I had a heart for God is the best way I could put it. So, you know, and I was a theologist. So as far as I was concerned, I had every right to be a priest and I wasn't going to wait for a bunch of men to tell me when I could or couldn't do it, you know. And w- when you explore different religions as, as you've done, do you feel that like all the religions they're all ta- just talking about the same god yes it's like coming to you know the town square by many different roads yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah and also Lovely. also they're ta- they're here's my motto and i drill this into i have a particularly religious son my 17 year old i always say to him you know it's important to believe everything and nothing yeah i get you you know yeah. Everything and nothing. But yes, everybody, there is only one, whatever you want to call it. I think God is a very off-putting word. There is something out there that responds to the human voice, yeah, and that gave us free will, which means, unfortunately, it cannot intervene on our behalf unless we ask it. Religion is like a devil. Okay. Religion's like a devil smokescreen. It has you literally in Israel talking to the fucking wall. All over mm-hmm. the world, religion has people talking to the wall. So the science isn't working. Uh, religion is built by the devil as a smokescreen to make you talk to the wall, literally or metaphorically, so that God doesn't intervene on behalf of the human race. That's how the science works. When you study uh, any 
theology of any religion, they'll always tell you that in the beginning it starts with either speaking or singing, that the God character brought things into existence by the power of the human voice. That's what Jesus is talking about. An anti, a militantly anti-religious character is Jesus because he's God. And when he teaches the Our Father, and he also says in another section, don't go to church, go in your room and talk to your father. But when he teaches the Our Father, he's actually, he's a scientist. He's teaching you the power of the spoken word. That's interesting. Yeah. So this universe operates on the power of the spoken word. There is something out there which people see when they have near-death experiences. They all come back having seen the same thing, even though they've experienced other things. There is a massive white being, which is neither male nor female, that just exudes love. Now, that thing responds to the human voice. You could be an atheist, a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, it doesn't bloody matter. If you talk to the universe, you will get responded to. But if you're talking via religion, you're getting nowhere because you're literally talking to the wall and God can't intervene. Hence, God is miserable. And what do you consider religion to be then? <clears throat> this reli- what, what, what would you, what is religion? It's the devil in disguise, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a a distraction invented by devilish people in order to turn us away from our direct relationship with God, which would have allowed God to intervene on behalf of the human race. If we got rid of religion, which will happen eventually, and we Mm -hmm. started instead talking to God like Jesus instructed us to, the world would be fixed in two seconds flat if the entire human race could only realize that they're talking to the wall and instead start talking directly to god god could intervene then on our behalf it gave us free will that was the stupidest mistake it ever made because it means it can't interfere religion gave us free will or god gave us free will? no god gave us free will which was a really stupid idea because it meant that you know it can't intervene on our behalf unless we ask it Religion was designed by devilish people to distract you from that knowledge and the knowledge of the science of the power of the spoken word and to distract you from the fact that Jesus is actually a militantly anti-religious character. Have you had, uh, many would say, religious experiences, not not religious experiences, sorry, um, deeply spiritual experiences? I would say being a musician, you you can't avoid it. I I believe very much what Lee Perry said, music is the Holy Spirit. So every time I've ever done a gig, it's a spiritual experience, absolutely. Because I call that flow. Like, I I chase flow. That's what I do as an artist. When I'm involved in my art, I simply leave this world. I'm on a different fucking planet and it is nothing but egoless pleasure. I don't know it's pleasure the word it's just I, I just you know what I'm talking about but I call that flow so do you consider flow to be spiritual well I guess what I consider is you know I always say a particular prayer before I go on stage and um, well two prayer one I ask please don't let me make a bloody fool of myself <laughs> and two, you know I want to be a priest yeah yeah now what I mean by that is a priest is someone by whom you know there's a God. They're very flawed people, extremely flawed people by necessity. Otherwise, they'd be fucking arrogant assholes, you know. But uh, Rastafari introduced to me the idea of music as a priesthood. If you look at Bob Dylan, for example, you know by him there's a God. Whether you believe in God or not, you just know by him there fucking must be one. Same with Muhammad Ali, although I think he was an archangel rather than a priest. But my thing is, I want people, when they've 
been at my show to feel like they've been to church, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the only time that I get to, that I engage with, it's not the only time I engage with God, but it's certainly the only time I feel, you know, that there's any chance of me being a priest, i.e. Ex- um, displaying the existence of God, you know? And you speak about, like, so when you are not in the best mental health, you don't create. No, I wouldn't be writing songs when I'm in that state of mind, no. But luckily I'm not in that state of mind too often. But no, I'm inclined to, I create when I'm feeling good. And can you enjoy other people's art when you're in a shit space? Oh yeah, but I don't listen to sad music when I'm in a shit space. That's just filling your cup full of misery. So I would listen to... What do you listen to? Stupid happy music. Well, actually, I've got to the certain age now. I only want to listen to peaceful music and I'm addicted to Hindu mantras. Wow, okay. That's pretty much all I listen to is Hindu mantras. Again, like the Jewish Psalms, the mantras have magical uses. There's one for air, everything you can think of, you know. So I listen to them. That's really all I listen to. And I play them all night while I'm sleeping and stuff like that, you know. So I can't talk that age where all you want to listen to is really peaceful music. Everything else is like, turn that noise off. (laughs) How do you feel about... um like the modern fucking business with Spotify and streaming services and things like that for artists. Well, it's killed a lot of us, to be fair, because we're all forced on the road to go touring to make a living. Yeah. It's killed a lot of families. We're leaving our kids more than we should. or elderly artists out on the road who should be enjoying their mm-hmm. environment. You know, in one way, though, the audience are getting better served because the record companies were ripping off the audience. It took... It, mm-hmm cost a record company 20 cent to make a cd and they're charging the audience 20 dollars you know so in in a way it's better because the audience are getting what they paid for now when they go to a gig you know but in in another way to be honest it's had disastrous consequences particularly for the families of musicians particularly Mm -hmm. female musicians those mothers that are leaving their children to go on tour yeah i know it had certainly a disastrous effect on my children my needing to leave home in order to pay the bills, you know. Because you'd be doing serious tours. You're talking six months, wouldn't you? Oh, no, God, no. That only happened once when I was young, and after that, no way. I used to go every six weeks in the summer when my kids were on holidays. Okay. But then it became that, you know, know, I had to go a bit more than that, but I would never be gone on the road for more than 10 days at a time and out of every month. That's my rule. We call it the 10-day rule. It infuriates everybody that works for me, but... I have the 10-day rule, so that includes my flight out and my flight back, that I'm not gone for more than 10 days. But even that is hard on young children, you know, and hard on mothers. And You know, I love gigging, but I hate touring. Very hard yeah. on anybody with a mental health condition. Because, yes. as, as you may know, the number one requirement for those of us with mental health conditions is extreme stability, you know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, touring is terribly destabilizing, you know. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I really don't like being dependent on touring to make a living. It's, it's quite depressing, to be honest. You know, I mean, you're only spending an hour and a half the day making music, which is great. The rest of the time, you're fucking weeping, you're missing your kids, you feel like shit, and you're completely destabilized, you know? In this, yeah, in the fucking hotels. Mm. Yeah, it's really not nice. No, um, to be honest, I really fucking hate it. I'm that's why, again, I wish Mariah Carey would cover some of my motherfucking songs, you know? Yeah. So your most commercially big song is nothing compares to you. 
But you don't get the royalties from that then, do you? You just get mechanicals. I don't even know if I get mechanicals. I don't, to be fair to you, I don't know how the bloody contracts work or who gets the mechanicals. I couldn't tell you. I never gave a shit. Um, but I'm assuming you're not getting... Do you get royalty checks for that song? No, no, Prince would have got them. So Prince's estate would continue to get them. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. So then you got to gig that and that's... Oh, yeah, but do, I Do you it. ever feel... No, I don't mind gigging it at all. I love it. And to be fair, it'd be terribly cruel to the audience if you didn't gig oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I figure people go to gigs for two reasons. One, they want to sing along. And two, they want distortion. You know, guitar distortion. So you got to give them what they came for. If they don't get to sing along with their favorite songs, well, I mean, what the hell did they spend their money for? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, the other thing with streaming services is, like, when you're you're talking about listening to an album like Slow Train when you're a kid and listening to it so much that it becomes like a parental figure. Yeah. Like, I I remember when I used to have to spend twenty quid on a CD. Right. I fucking lived with that fucking CD. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. I didn't pick up that CD and go, oh, I'm not sure about this. It's yeah. like, hold on a second, buddy. You're spending yeah. two months listening to this fucking thing until oh, you yeah. understand it. And you listen to it all the way through in sequence, right? You didn't just listen to the odd track. Like, that's the worst thing about Spotify and stuff like that is, well, apart from the fucking fact we're all getting ripped off. But like, yeah. you know, people are only listening to maybe one or track or two tracks. So it used to be you bought an album because you knew the artist was telling a story via the sequencing of the songs. Mm-hmm. sequencing is terribly important to me as well do you know so that's one of the things that got lost with all the Spotify thing was the idea of an album actually I, I discovered uh, like Bob Dylan would have been a huge hugely important to me for my mental health for finding out who I am as a person yeah. I would have uh, grown up with Bob Dylan in the house when I was a kid because of my older brothers but Correct. I only would have made a choice to get into Dylan when I was maybe 15 yeah and thank fuck Yes. I had a limited amount of money and I literally, I'd go to HMV and I'd take it album by album and they were 15, 20 quid. Yeah. And I got to take a journey that took maybe three years yeah. to truly, like I, it took a year to get the slow train because I'd done all the stuff before it. Yeah, yeah. And it was this magnificent fucking journey of learning and experience. Yeah, absolutely. And now today, like, what was the most recent one? Graham Parsons. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to get into Graham Parsons. And yeah. then I go to Spotify and I'm just horsing through all his albums in a half an hour. Yeah. And there's no, I'm not paying any respect to the art there, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a whole different, yeah. a different ball game. Yeah, totally different. But I guess, as I say, you know, the one good thing about it all is the fact that we have to perform live means for once in their lives, the audience are getting what they paid for. Um, I'm going to ask you one or two questions that I got asked by my people on my Instagram when I said I was going to chat to you. Sure. Someone said, did you punch Prince into the jaw? <laughs> no, I didn't. Where the fuck did they hear that? I kind of wish I had. No, I didn't get that far, unfortunately. I didn't get that close. Was there a pillow fight or something? Uh, well, it's, you can read about it in the book. In fact, it's the best chapter in the book, if I say so myself. So I, I won't bother trying to tell it here because it's told in a kind of funny and scary way in the book. But what was? Uh, did you have a pleasant experience with Prince or an unpleasant experience? An extremely frightening experience. Ah, oh, fuck! Okay. Uh, incredibly frightening experience for any woman ah. to go through. Ah, bollocks! 
I'm very that's disappointing. I'm very sorry to hear that, Sinead. Um who have you met that left a lasting positive impact? Like who who was incredibly sound that you can think of? Uh, Lou Reed. Oh really? Lou Reed, uh, Willie Nelson, Muhammad Ali, I was lucky to meet. Um God, loads of people. You know, Damien Dempsey obviously. Mm-hmm. Sharon Shannon, Donald Lunny, um, loads of people. But Bob Dylan, even you know. But the person that I really that stands out for me in terms of soundness is um, Lou Reed. He he was really really ni- nice to me at a time when everybody else was being an asshole. You know, he would. Um, we did a TV show once, and I've written about this in the book. Not long after the Pope thing. There was a show called The White Room in England, and the idea was it was a bit like Jules Holland. Everybody mm-hmm. bands kind of in a circle, and each band would play one song in row and then another. And when I walked into the rehearsal, everybody turned their backs on me, the musicians and everybody, because of course, oh, she's why? Because oh, she's a crazy bitch for ripping up the Pope. She, she, oh, for fuck's sake! Because you must be crazy to not want fame and fortune, you know. So what you've done is you ha- it wasn't you'd insulted the Pope. It's like, how dare she insult the religion of celebrity? How, exactly. how dare she not play exactly. the fucking rules? And, mon- and money and pop stardom, exactly. So Fuck. I had met Lou a couple of times. Well, one time previously at a, at a, there was the Who had a 50th birthday for Roger Daltrey gig in, in mm-hmm. New York somewhere. And I sang back in vocals with Lou Reed, and oh God, I nearly died. I, I had like a panic attack when he was telling me I could do it. It was like his mouth was moving. It was like, whoa. And were you a Lou Reed fan? Oh, yeah. Well, of one particular record of his, which is called New York. Fucking New York. Oh, my God. What a fucking album. That's my favorite Lou Reed album. Yeah, but I kind of didn't know how much I loved him until I met him. It was weird. He's the only person I ever met that I had a panic attack over meeting, you know. But then what happened was that years later, then we're doing the white, the white room and Lou is on it. And he clocks that everybody's treating me like shit. And, of course, everyone thinks he's the coolest dude on the show. Mm-hmm. And even though he didn't know me at all, apart from I sang back in vocals for him once, he fucking walk, made a point of walking over to me across the whole room and hugging me for like five minutes like we were best mates and, you know, kind of showing everybody up by pretending we, we were great mates and, you know, just gave me the most loving hugs, you know, because he knew... There's a lot of empathy there. ...difficult for me going through that stuff. But it was also it wasn't the, it wasn't only empathy for me it was his way of just showing these people they were dicks do you know mm-hmm. that he just pretended that we were like best mates on earth do you know what i mean so he was a lovely fucking man lovely man but you know i've, I've been lucky and met many many people like my favorite one of my biggest influences is a rastafari band called um israel vibration mm-hmm. and i've got a friend called benjamin zephaniah and he took me to see Israel Vibration at the Brixton Academy. And bloody, I ended up on stage singing all of my songs that had kept me alive. Like, hold, oh my God. holding hands with the lead singer, singing these bloody songs. Like, that's How did that happen? Did they see you in the audience? Did they know you were coming? Well, Benjamin is a, is a Rastafari and a, um, he's a college lecturer on, on mm-hmm. all kind of history. He was offered a... A uh, member of the British Empire Award at the time, he had turned it down and written play. a brilliant article um, for one of the English newspapers. Um, he's sort of academic, but also a poet, 
you know, but very heavily Rastafari. So he was friends with them and he knew I was a big fan. So he took me backstage just to say hello. And of course, when he let them know what a fan I was, the bloody singer says here, come on and sing the stuff with us. Oh my God, I nearly died. So that's my favorite live performance that I ever remember holding that guy's hand, singing the song. I was like, oh my God, I died. I went to heaven. Like, you know, that's fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Um, did you, you, you were knocking about when there was serious anti-Irishness over in Britain and you would have been one of our, our major exports. Yeah, whenever a bomb went off in London, they used to chuck all the Kerrygold butter out of the supermarkets. Yeah. yeah. But I was I used to be pissed about it, to be fair, because, you know, the buses, they were full of Jamaicans. They're getting driven by Hindus and Rastas and Jamaicans. Yeah very people who were in support of Irish freedom, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't like the whole, I, I, I'm totally there when it comes to self-defense. I'd be the first mm-hmm. right there at the wall, you know what I mean? But terrorism is a whole other matter. And, you know, mm-hmm. n- not that it's right to be killing anyone, but like the fucking people that were dying were Jamaicans and Indians. And, you know, it was kind of awful, to be fair. But, um, yeah, it was a very racist country at the time, England, altogether. So they would chuck the Kerrygold or Irish products, the Tato and Barry's tea out of the supermarkets when a bomb went off. Yeah, because the actions of the IRA, like, isn't all Irish people. And, you know, if a burglar was black and it was written about in the newspaper, they'd say, in big black letters, they'd say, Black John Smith burgled something, yeah. you know. And yeah. There were black guys getting beat to death in police stations and then their families would come looking for them and the cops would be saying, no, we'd never heard of them, you know. It was very, I I arrived there pretty much a day before the Brixton riots. (laughs) So, yeah, it was, uh, I remember getting hassled, and I've written about this in the book, by a skinhead when I was trying to use a phone box. So I queued up to use a phone box in um, London. There was an Indian lady in there and this fucking skinhead was giving her a hard time, you know. And then he started giving me a hard time. But then I like pointed out to him that, you know, since they colonized all our countries and fucked them up, we had to come to fucking London. This dude was like, London phone boxes is for London people. You know? <laughs> and I was like, fuck you, man. We wouldn't be here if you hadn't fucked up our countries. You think we want to be here? Like, you know? Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was a heavy, it was a heavy country. It was a horrible time for Ireland and England, you know. And as I say, look, you know, I consider myself, a Republican, but I don't believe in terrorism or that it achieved mm-hmm. anything. In fact, it was devilish and, you know, it's a terribly, terribly sad period in English and Irish history, you know. You, you've you always had a bit of a, a kind of a, an intersection solidarity in your career. Like, I, I think it was the MTV Awards. Um, did you shave the public enemy symbol into the side of your head to show support for how rap artists were being treated in the music industry in the late 80s or 90s? Well, what it was, was that, that it was a very interesting Grammys, the first record that I put out. I oh, got, the Grammys, okay. It was the Grammys. I got nominated for an award and they didn't know what category to put me in. They couldn't figure out what the fuck I was. So They, they invented a category for you. Didn't they call you postmodern or some shit yeah, like that? They invented a category. Fuck. And then at the time, what happened was it was the first year that there was going to be a rap award at the Grammys, but the Grammys were refusing to televise the rap award, right? So Public Enemy, whose records kept getting banned and then entering the chart at number one, uh, decided to boycott the awards, and they asked me instead to collect their award for them. Wow. So I had their emblem um, painted into the side of my head as a kind of an homage. 
And you, what, what was, I'd say Chuck D's good crack. He seems like a decent fella. You know what, I've never actually met him. I've spoken to him on the phone years ago, but I've never actually met him. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I think I think we'll wrap it up now, Sinead. That was All right, th- Richard. Thank you so much for that. Right. Great pleasure. I've been dying to do this podcast for years. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the chat. I'd, I'd love to chat to you again. And best of luck with the book. So that was my conversation with Sinead O'Connor, which was an absolute pleasure. Her memoir is called Rememberings, and it's in shops in June 1st, if you want to go and grab a a copy of that. I'll be back next week. Don't know what about. In the meantime, enjoy the weather. Rub a dog. Rub a cat. Smell a leaf. Smell a flower. Do you know what I mean? Yart. God bless. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.